Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Robert Frederick. We spoke back in April 30th, 2021, about his excellent podcast, which you can see, or broadcast, you can see on YouTube. Uh, the title of the that broadcast is The Hidden Life is Best, and we spoke specifically about Sir Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. But today we're going to talk, he reached out to me and gave me an update on some of the work he's been doing. So I listened to the podcast that we're going to kind of cover today, which also covers Bacon, but the specific title of that is The Tragedy of Macbeth. So I listened to his podcast. I also watched a really fascinating version of Macbeth that you can find on YouTube that has Ian McKellen and Judy Dench in it. And so I kind of, uh, I was going to watch the Polanski version too, but, uh, his podcast and just watching it again made made uh, opened my eyes to a lot of things going on in this play that he can talk more about. So, Robert Frederick, welcome back the, to the show. How are you? Hi, William. Great to be with you again. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing. Thanks for coming back and reaching out to me. For people who may not have heard our last interview, can you talk about your background, what led you to Bacon, and kind of your position on Bacon, and maybe just give people a brief or you know lengthy, however you want to do it, a uh, uh, kind of overview of Sir Francis Bacon for the audience, please. I think, I think my interest began just trying to understand why the world was such a mess when everyone I meet, 99% of the people I meet are, are decent and seem to believe in fair play and, you know, fairness and a good shake for the other guy. And why is the world such a mess? And I kept coming back to England. It just seemed like the English empire, wherever they were, there's problems and they seemed to want to take over the world. So I started focusing in on the English empire and Francis Bacon's name kept coming up. And then I had this tremendous synchronicity that is beyond chance and having to do with Francis Bacon. I'm going to put that up on the podcast one day and it changed my life. And I thought I have to really dig into Francis Bacon. And what I found is just absolutely extraordinary. And I've decided to call him the most influential person who ever lived. I make a joke. I say trademark on the podcast. And I think he's probably the smartest person that ever lived, but you can't prove that. But I think a strong case can be made that he's the most influential person uh, because he is recognized as the father of modern science. That's pretty much in agreement across the board. And he's recognized as the person, the starting point of the Enlightenment what's known as the Enlightenment era, which followed the Renaissance era, which followed medieval era, which followed the Dark Ages in European history. And that's, uh, that's quite a distinction. That's quite an honor. And that's kind of what he's known for, a philosopher of science. But that is just the very, very beginning of Francis Bacon's life. The second part that he's acknowledged uh, as, as being a great lawyer. Um, he eventually became attorney general of England, uh, became Lord Chancellor, which is the number two position right under the king or queen, even served as king briefly as regent when James went back to Scotland. So there's that. He was a, an amazing lawyer as well as a philosopher. But what's rarely talked about in his biographies is that he was also heavily involved in espionage. And he started his career at the age of 15 when he dropped out of college and said he's going to take on Plato and Aristotle <laughs> because their philosophy wasn't useful enough. He wanted a philosophy of usefulness, i.e. science. He knew that at the age of 15. He developed codes of uh, cryptography codes so you could write secret messages it, while in france he spent three years in france 15 age of 15 to 18 so there his career in espionage started and it turns out that he was extremely precocious he read latin and greek by the age of seven 
he was known to have an extraordinary memory. He was born right next door to the palace of Queen Elizabeth. He had absolutely the most fertile ground possible for developing an extraordinary mind. He had absolute best education. The Elizabethans did prize education for the aristocrats. Uh, and he is rumored to eventually have read every book in print at that time, especially, you know, the, the stuff that wasn't translated into English yet. And Bacon researchers say some pretty amazing things about him. A lot of it can't be proven, but he's suspected of, of having written a lot of books that are not under his name. Now, Again, we're just getting started here because Francis Bacon is very strongly associated with the Rosicrucian movement. That's also something that's generally agreed to across the board because his writings are so close to what the Rosicrucians wrote about. And he really tipped his hand in his most famous book, uh, The New Atlantis, which is extremely Rosicrucian and kind of ends in this almost like Gnostic symphony. And it's a very interesting book. It's very famous. And it's all about a utopia, quote unquote, utopia that's based on science. It's part of kind of a fantasy tale where these sailors discover this island somewhere in the ocean and they describe it. And it's very Rosicrucian. Now, the Rosicrucians were forerunners to the Freemasons. And there are a lot of people that finger Francis Bacon as someone who molded modern Freemasonry. And Freemasonry, in my opinion, there's a great book called Born in Blood by an independent historian who's brilliant, John Robinson. I think he's passed away. Uh, that traces that that kind of ends the rumor that the Knights Templar morphed into the Freemasons. So Freemasonry does go back; its symbolism goes does go back to ancient religions, and definitely goes back to the Knights Templars who originated in the 1100s. And Jacques de Molay, Jacques de Molay is kind of the famous. Guy. Yeah, that's a whole giant topic: the the Knights Templars and turning into the Freemasons, but. By all appearances, Francis Bacon was heavily involved in kind of creating modern Freemasonry, which centers a lot around theater and ritual. And then it appears by all metrics that I can come up with that Francis Bacon was also Shakespeare. The evidence... <laughs> It's really overwhelming when you spend some time looking at it. It's just shocking. So those, those facts, I think they're facts about Francis Bacon. And I'm not alone. I'm far from alone. In right. You mentioned things. the Bacon Society, right? The, the Francis Bacon Society. And there's tons of uh, literature and tons. interviews on YouTube of people saying this person, Shakespeare, could not have existed because right. he didn't have access to all of the information like Bacon is a perfect overlay for all the things that got put into Shakespeare, the French words, the history, yeah. the access to libraries. Yeah, so. he's the perfect candidate. And I just want to say for anyone who's not convinced yet that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, there's three great videos on YouTube. One is by Diana Price, who's a scholar who finally went in and did the dirty work and could find literally zero evidence that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon had anything to do with writing the Shakespeare plays. She does. She has a brilliant book called the uh, Shakespeare's Unorthodox Biography. And that's the name of the video on YouTube, Diana Price, Shakespeare's Unorthodox Biography, which is kind of scientifically shows that no way did this person write the place doesn't even look like he could he could write or read which is really weird mark twain an early adopter of the bacon theory wrote a book called is shakespeare dead and a man named keir cutler has made a one-person theater piece out of it is shakespeare dead hysterical and then there's an amazing video called cracking the shakespeare code 
by a Norwegian fellow whose name I forget, who wrote a book about Bacon and Shakespeare. And he engages with a, an English Shakespeare scholar and they discuss the evidence over an hour and a half. It's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. It's really fun and well-made and informative. So I would, if you're on the fence about whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, watch those three or any one of them and have your mind blown that this incredible, this incredible fact has been kept a secret for almost 400 years. Although the dam started breaking around 1850 when Delia Bacon, an American woman, started this movement. However, in Bacon's time, there were rumors and there were poems written that implicated Bacon as Shakespeare. But that get that we're getting into the weeds there. But right. and you said, I think in our last discussion, you said even mentioning that Shakespeare wasn't the author of this, even in the 50s or something, was yeah. verboten. Like, whoa, you could get in real trouble. You yeah, you get fired. Career. You you fired. You pretty much couldn't say it if you had a yeah. job in academia. You'd be a crazy person. You're, you're nuts. You're right. fired. Get out of here. Kind of like today, if you question, <laughs> right? COVID can't, the original cancel culture was yeah. don't mention yeah. Shakespeare. Uh, and I've heard that still in England, it's kind of a taboo topic. Although at the University of London, you can take a you can take a class on Shakespeare authorship, and it's very very good. You can take it for free on uh, Coursera. Oh, interesting. Uh, but and people, you, you know, it's a big you, part of the English identity, Shakespeare. It might be the central part, actually, because it's like the classics of English literature are Shakespeare, all those comedies, tragedies. I agree. Oh, yeah. I think Bacon intentionally made it, intentionally made it part of the English identity and knew it would be part of the English identity. And my real theory is that it's a, it's a major part of building the English empire. And that, his espionage work went way beyond spying and it went into social engineering. And 10 of the Shakespeare plays are called the history plays. And they're all pure propaganda to validate the Tudor government. So right there, you know, this great artist was actually a propagandist, which shows you a lot about what the purpose of the plays were for. And that was for the audience at home. And it, re it really worked. I mean, the Tudor, the Tudor dynasty was the last dynasty in England that was taken over by, you know, usurpation. King Henry VII, Henry Tudor, defeated Richard III in battle. And since that time, it's been a fairly peaceful transition. There have been ups and downs. There was, a, you know, Cromwell took over, but he had the parliament with him at that stage. But, but anyway, Shakespeare was, it's known, this is, this is standard Shakespeare scholarship, that Shakespeare was a propagandist for the Tudor, the Tudor Which regime. goes against the notion that he was just some individual guy from Stratford-on-Avon because right, right. you would assume that he wouldn't have that same agenda at such an early age writing these, these plays or something. Right, or and this incredible knowledge of English history um, and just and, world history, Julia, uh, Julius Caesar is on point. Like you had to know yeah. so many things. Yeah. Yeah. And the characters of the people are correct. There's just so much that's astute. Like somebody from the sticks would may not get certain things correct. But like Julius Caesar is like almost a per, I mean, in my opinion, I don't, I, you know, I, this could be wrong, but it seems like it's a perfect representation of the death of Julius Caesar in the Civil War. Absolutely. And there's a scene in there uh, that's very re re reminiscent of mind control where Brutus makes a speech and the crowd is really angry and he makes a speech and calms them down and then makes them angry at someone else and they, they run out and murder, quote unquote, the poet. They, they, he kind of makes the crowd mad with his speech. I, I'm not prepared to talk about that, but it's just another example of what I keep seeing uh, in Bacon's work over and over again. Because what, uh, what I've also found is that Freemasonry is basically a Gnostic religion. And Bacon's writings re really smack of Gnosticism, which is an ancient group of religious sects that believe that the God of this world is evil. 
and that this world uh that the the god of the hebrews is is created this world to trap our souls here and that comes up over and over again in his work and the idea that freemasons are gnostics isn't really known to the average freemason but albert pike writes about it and it's kind of a complicated discussion but it comes up in Macbeth and in Macbeth, the three things that get tied together are the Freemasonry because there's a lot of Freemasonry in Macbeth, according to Freemasons hmm. and the Freemasons were not uh, public until 1717. Some say 1723 and Macbeth was written around 1606 to welcome King James to the throne of England. It's also called the Scottish play because it takes place in Scotland. And they avoid uh, and saying the name Macbeth because it's bad luck too, right? Or something <laughs> like that, right? So that's why they call it the it's Scottish play. It's a spooky, ski, uh, scary play. It's really brutal. Uh, it's really horrific. It's really nihilistic. And people feel like uh, it's got a curse on it and that they have bad luck when they do the play. So they try not to say the name Macbeth when they're talking about the play, when they're in the play as actors or directors. So they say McBee or they say the Scottish play. It's like an urban myth or urban legend. You don't mess around with that. For people who don't know the background of Macbeth and the storyline, can you provide just a quick overview? about? Yeah, what so the play is based loosely on, on true events. There was a King Macbeth and that King Macbeth did kill the previous king, King Duncan. But he didn't do it surreptitiously. He didn't do it at night while the king was sleeping. He kind of, for those days, fair and square, took the kingship in hand-to-hand combat. And he murdered King Duncan, and he became King Macbeth. But instead of being crazy and destroying Scotland, it was actually a peaceful reign for something like 11 years. And unlike Macbeth, where there's zero Christianity, there's zero redemption, there's almost zero positivity besides what I'm going to reveal later in the interview as who is the true hero of the Macbeth play, which goes unnoticed, but it's right there. It's right there in the play. Uh, you know, there's no Christianity, but the king, but the real Macbeth actually did a pilgrimage to Rome and stayed for a few months. I think it was Pope Leo the ninth, who's supposed to be a very good Pope. And he spread money around. He, he gave tons of money to the poor and he was very Christian. Uh, so, and none of that is in the play. The play just kind of uses it in a completely different way. Um, and there is some more history in the play where they do reference the King of England. Um, King was his name. Oh, geez, I forgot the King of England's name at that time. Uh, that's too bad. Should have written it. Should have written it down. Who was the only, who was actually a fairly saintly character? Apparently, he was the only English king to ever be canonized. He's known as Saint. Ah, it's not coming yeah. to me. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll let you know. I should know too. Uh, Let's see if I can find it. King, not George. Hmm. So there is some history in Macbeth. Uh, and I looked it up on Goodreads, the website Goodreads about books, and it's apparently the second most popular play on Goodreads. It's always listed as one of the most popular Shakespeare plays, usually second behind uh, Hamlet. And uh, what I found when I looked at it is that it's steeped in Gnosticism. It's steeped in Freemasonry. And I think there is the theme of hypnosis and that Macbeth. So, so how Macbeth is usually seen by people is that it's a, it's a play of good conquering evil. And that the evil is Macbeth and his wife who are overachievers. They're, you know, they're greedy. They're duplicitous. They're murderers. Who, who are only motivated by power and to kill the king. But actually, Macbeth, when the play opens, is, is merely the greatest fighter in the kingdom. 
and super courageous who saves the kingdom from treason and uh, invasion by the king of Norway and, and treason from another aristocrat, the Thane of Cawdor. And in the and so this, the play starts with the witches chanting "Fair is foul and foul is fair," which is the kind of a Gnostic credo, and that there is no real distinction between good and evil. It's kind of the dualist credo of the ancient, some of the ancient religions, that God created good and evil at the same time, and that life involves like the union of the two. It then, seems fitting and proper that a witch would speak that too. Well, yeah. So the, the witches chant that, and they're casting some spell, and then they know Macbeth is coming, and they meet. And Macbeth meets meets the witches in the third scene, very early in the play. And this is where I found what I think is pretty astonishing stuff. They address Macbeth and they tell him that one day that he will be Thane of Cawdor. In other words, he's going to kind of get bumped up in the aristocracy from Thane of Glamis to Thane of Cawdor. Thane being the word instead of Duke or Count or Earl in Scotland. He's going to be Thane of Cawdor and one day he will be king. And Macbeth seems to immediately go into a trance because Banquo, his friend, who's also a thane, but they were both in the war together and they're coming home. Banquo says to him, why do you start? You seem to fear things that sound so fair, of noble having and of royal hope, that he seems wrapped with all. So he describes Macbeth as being wrapped. And if you look up wrapped, it comes from Latin, which is the word to seize, and that Macbeth has been seized by these words of the witches. And then Macbeth asked the witches, say from whence you owe this strange intelligence, implying that the witches have intelligence, are intelligencers. The word for spies in England at that time was intelligencer. So I feel like they're being outed as intelligencers. How do they have this intelligence? Of course, they don't tell him. Uh, which is also, they, they come and go. At one point in the scene, they vanish like a spook. They're spooks. And a spook, of course, is another word for a spy. A modern, yeah, a modern word for it, right? Yeah. So Banquo sees the witches too. They're not a figment of Macbeth's imagination. And they're not some kind of metaphor for evil they actually exist in the play and they come up again later in the play Banquo sees them Macbeth sees them they both agree on what the witches said they said the same things to both of them and of course they say that Banquo's will sire kings Macbeth will be king but Banquo will Banquo's kids will someday be king Banquo's offspring will be king and then Astonishingly, Macbeth says, why do I yield to that suggestion? And the suggestion is murder. His, he, he says then that my mind is filled with thoughts of murder. Specifically, he says, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? Present fears... So and then he he's says, saying that even before he meets his wife, right? Yes. Yeah, his, see, that's his very important. Mind is filled with murder. For no reason. He doesn't understand. He said, makes my heart knock against my ribs. His heart is pounding. And he says, uh, nothing is but what is not. And that's kind of the theme of the play. Nothing is but what is not. The play is, in my mind, designed to pull the rug out from under you. You you're not sure what's real, what's not real. There doesn't seem to be any center. There's no center of good. This theme constantly comes up that you can't tell what's true and what's not true by looking at someone, by listening to someone. There's no art to finding truth in the construction of a face. Comes up three times in the play. And Banquo again then says, uh, look how our partner is wrapped. Again, he's like taken away. And that's how sometimes hypnotized people look. So immediately 
which is somehow put into Macbeth's mind to murder the king, which was not there at all before. Macbeth does not seek out the kingship. He doesn't do any magic spells. He doesn't call on the witches. He doesn't call on any dark forces. He's just trying to get home after a hard day's work. And the witches interfere. And Macbeth is never the same. From that point on, it's just a downward spiral. It sets the narrative right there. It's him (laughs) meeting the witches. And it's important to contextualize this scene because at that time in the early 17th century, this was real. Like the witches right there there were all kinds of witch burnings demonology you know so this is all you know common it was common common back then and the irony is today that people just discount it it's just oh it's just a quaint anachronism it's just something they used to believe in it it gets completely discounted if you ever read reviews of the play they 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 don't even mention the witches they're the, the central kind of pivot of the entire plot and you just get brushed aside. Modern audiences think of them as, as a metaphor of evil, I think. No, they're wrong. But I think you're right of the importance because the, all of the actions of the protagonists are based upon the statements of the witches. So yeah. it's almost like they're all bewitched. Everything the witches say comes true. Right. So it's a very much a black magic, occult kind of themed element to the entire place. So people overlooking that. Absolutely, mind control. And what is, you know, to cut to the chase, what happens? They, they, they create an assassin that kills the king. There's one more kind of hypnotic thing or two, like Lady Macbeth reads the letter. The letter is very mysterious. We don't see it delivered. We don't see it being written. It just kind of appears at the castle. And Lady Macbeth herself is instantly consumed with bloodlust, which is, which is kind of weird. But okay, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I guess it's it's his play. He can do what he wants. Uh, and then that night, that very night, the king comes. They have a party. The king is asleep in the castle. Macbeth sees a dagger appear before him, and that's another technique of hypnosis. You can absolutely make someone see something that isn't there, or make something not see, make someone not see something that is there. And this is very clear in a great book by uh, George Estabrook called Hypnosis, which used to cost $5. It's out of print. I, I looked for it recently. It was $200. He, he worked for the OSS. He brags about creating mind-controlled soldiers. He says it's not very moral, but this is war. Uh, you can find the book online. If you go to thehiddenlifeisbest.com, there's a link. Somebody has put it up online. You can read a lot of it. It really will blow your mind about the possibilities of hypnosis and Macbeth to my mind is under hypnotic control and he kills the King. Now, one of the reasons I think he's obviously under hypnotic control is that he immediately feels remorse. And so does lady Macbeth. That's a key part of the play is that they both feel horrible afterwards. Lady Macbeth eventually spirals into an intense, you know, insanity and depression and seems to kill herself and cold that doesn't happen to cold-blooded killers who are set out to kill someone how often have a cold-blooded killer you know gone in and apologized or 20 years later confessed to the crime they don't they don't seem to do that it doesn't happen often. they don't have the conscience that's why they were a cold-blooded killer so that that also to me implicates them that they were they were Forced, they were coerced into doing it, really almost against their will, which can be done. We've been told that hypnosis, under hypnosis, you won't violate your own internal moral code, which, which frankly is true unless you trick someone. Right, into thinking done. that it is the right thing, right? Exactly, which is in George Estabrook's book. They actually tricked these secretaries. They just grabbed these two secretaries in the office they were in. And hypnotized them and said that the person in front of them is trying to kill them. And so the secretaries tried to kill the person who they thought was trying to kill them. That didn't violate their moral code. And Darren Brown, the great Darren Brown, the hypnotist uh, performer, has a, a piece. I should have written it down, but he actually recreates a Sirhan Sirhan. 
uh, he picks this guy out and deeply puts him into hypnosis, which takes weeks. It doesn't happen in, in five minutes like it does in Macbeth. Um, but that's kind of just a compression. They, they do it to him, I think. Uh, but Darren Brown has this thing that is it possible to create a mind control killer? And he does. He does. And he has this guy stand up and shoot someone in public, just like what Sirhan Sirhan did. Uh, it's fantastic. Fantastic episode of Darren Brown. Uh, and then what happens is the kingdom is thrown into chaos. Macbeth has to continue killing because in this kind of mythic sense, he, he senses that Banquo's children are going to be king. And so he has to try to kill them, which brings up this kind of mythic sense like Moses, like Jesus, even all the way back to Zeus, uh, where the, the ruler is afraid of being usurped by a young person and has to go on a killing spree. Um, and what happens, long story short, of course, is that the kingdom is thrown into chaos. And eventually, one of the characters named Macduff comes back to England from Scotland. He's another Scottish aristocrat and kills Macbeth. And Macduff is sort of the putative hero of the play because he slew Macbeth. And it sort of looks like good conquered evil. But Macduff, if he's a hero, he's an anti-hero because very clearly in the play, it's shown that he leaves his wife and child to, to go to England. And he goes to England to chase after the slain King Duncan's son who fled to England. King Duncan's son, when he finds out that his father was killed by Macbeth, what does he do? He immediately runs away. Him and his brother go, we better get out of here. And they, they just skedaddle. They don't try to find out the killer. They don't try to defend their father. They're actually in line to be king, you know, in the way things worked back then, but they run away. So they're completely unheroic. Macduff abandons his family to chase after this cowardly son of the king. His family gets killed in one of probably the most gruesome scenes you could see. I mean, it violates all codes of filmmaking because it puts a, a child in danger. In fact, on stage in the play, as written by Francis Shakespeare Bacon, the child gets knifed. In cold blood, obviously cold blood, it's a little boy, you know, by some hired killer of Macbeth. And the wife gets raped and knifed for no reason at all. It's just Macbeth has, has gone insane. There's absolutely no reason for this murder. And Mac, Macduff let it happen. He abandoned his family. So at the end of the play, what kind of hero is this? Neither one of them, the new King Duncan and Macbeth, Macduff, who killed Macbeth, are not heroes. There's just no heroes in the play, except there is, unconsciously, is the English army. Because it's the English army has been invited to invade Scotland to restore order that was created by the assassination of the king who was killed by a mind control killer orchestrated by English intelligence. And this is something that has since then happened. I mean, that's an event in world history that strange, obviously Sirhan Sirhan, strange lone nut assassins have knocked off presidents. Uh, I don't know if we talked about Sirhan Sirhan before we went on the air, but there's your perfect example. Okay, here's the name of the king. We did. We talked about that Chase Hughes video of him going into Sir Henry. Oh, here's the name of the king. His name was Edward the Confessor. The most pious Edward. So he gets name dropped in the play. When Macduff goes to England, they actually start talking for some reason about the most pious Edward. Edward the Confessor, who who is given in the play Christ-like powers of healing. They don't mention Christ. Christ is never mentioned in the play. 
but Edward is, has these healing powers. It used to be called the King's Touch. Um, the the subjects would be so sick from the you know the rotten uh, conditions in London, they would grow sores on their neck called scrofulous, which is where the word scruffy comes from. And even King James would do this. He would go around and and give them a coin and kind of touch their neck with the coin, and it was supposed to heal their necks. So the kings had these Christ-like healing powers. That, that was something that actually used to happen. James used to do it. I don't know if Edward the Confessor actually did it, but Edward the Confessor was the real king during the time of Macbeth, and he's name-dropped kind of in contradistinction to Macbeth as most pious king, the king of England. He's so pious. He heals people. He's a healer. And he raises an army that invades Scotland. So the Christ-like Pius the Confessor, uh, Edward the Confessor, is kind of the hero of the play, but it's really the English army that invades and allows Macduff to even get close to Macbeth. Because apparently the Scottish could not handle Macbeth without the English army's help. So that help so that's really in my mind there is a hero in the play and it's only put into you unconsciously that great and wonderful england has saved the day again and brought order to scotland which couldn't take care of its own problems which is kind of the rationale for the english empire right but it's also full of witches too there's a bunch of witches in scotland and there's a bunch of people stabbing each other and uh, yeah, crazies, right. mentally right. ill people, and we've got this holy confessor character, and this we're which doing they, the right which, thing. It's God's will. In, we're we're above reproach. Yeah, it, which morphed into the white man's burden, right? The crazy uh, philosophy that oh, right. God damn, we just gotta go help these savages. We just gotta go help these savages. Yeah, I don't mean, you know, I don't know about. Rose. That's that's the whole British Empire in a lot of ways. So you right can there. see that ideology or that yep. blueprint in the view yep. of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Yep, it's right there. The yep. whole idea. Multiplied ideology. a thousand times all over the world. Absolutely, absolutely, it's right there, and it's using occult mind control techniques. And the other thing we find in Macbeth is that it's. It's filled with Freemasonry, which is which gets kind of complicated. You'll have to go to episode four of Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. You know, it's on Apple and Spotify. It's not on, uh, it's on Apple and Spreaker um, for the details of that. But there is a Freemason named uh, Brother uh, McGuffey who details all this Masonic symbolism, especially in the uh, the death of Macbeth. Um, which is a little bit veiled. If you're not a Mason and you haven't studied Masonry, you wouldn't catch the symbolism. But Brother McGuffey details it in such a way that, you know, it's inescapable. There's a lot of uh, number symbolism and visual symbolism that to uh, this Freemason uh is very, very clear. And again, you'll find the link to that on my website, The Hidden Life is Best, um, from Brother McGuffey. So there's tons of, there's tons of masonry. It even seems to recapitulate the entire Hiram Abiff theatrical centerpiece of the Masonic initiation in the way that Banquo is murdered. Um, and again, it is thought that Francis Bacon created that theatrical part of Masonic initiation. And partly this all holds together because Bacon is so heavily implicated in the Rosicrucians, that standard scholarship. And the Rosicrucians are, again, standard scholarship considered precursors to Freemasonry. And there's so much Freemasonry in Shakespeare before Freemasonry was known about publicly. It was still actually a secret society that all these things support each other. And there's a lot of people that think Bacon was heavily involved in creating Freemasonry. And there's 
thousands of people that think Bacon was the real Shakespeare. And there's mainstream scholarship that believes that Bacon probably was almost wholly responsible for the Rosicrucian movement. And the Rosicrucian movement is triple fascinating because it was really science-based. It was again about science. Like we are this hidden college seeking knowledge. Like the invisible college, right? And they wanted to get this end old age and disease. In other words, they wanted the secret to eternal life. They kind of wanted to become like God. They wanted the powers of God. And it's directly linked to today's transhumanist movement, which wants to end death. They want to be able, Ray Kurzweil works for Google, really thinks he's going to download his consciousness into a computer and in effect, never die. He really and truly believes that. And that's what, that's the goal of transhumanism is to live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Maybe eternally. I don't know if they it the say elixir that. of life, I think, is what they called it back then, right? I think it was the yeah. elixir of life or the philosopher's it, stone was never Yeah. They they really kind of believe that. And that's you know, that's that's kind of asking for godlike powers. And they would believe that because they don't believe in God. They don't believe that there's an afterlife. They don't believe that there's any kind of eternal life for the soul or that they're trapped here and they're just going to have to come back here. So in my mind, it's kind of this Rosicrucianism via Freemasonry because the early Royal Society, the early scientific body in England just after uh, Francis Bacon's lifetime was called the Royal Society, it still exists today. It's one of the leading scientific institutions still to this day, was full of Freemasons. So the Rosicrucians lead directly to the Freemasons and both of them lead via the kind of Gnostic idea that the world needs to be controlled. The world is, there's something wrong with the world. Right. We need science. It's our obligation. Science knowledge to, is what's going to change the whole thing, right? Yeah. And they were right. You know, you can divide ancient from modern through the life of Francis Bacon, through the time of the Rosicrucians. They said the world is going to change, and they were right. It did. He knew that there was soon to be a great amount of scientific knowledge coming forward. And that's what Francis Bacon was the cheerleader for. He wasn't really a scientist. Some people say he was a scientist. He was a cheerleader for science. And sure enough, within a hundred years, you know, the Industrial Revolution happened in London, directly because of Francis Bacon urging people to change how they thought. Like, don't think deductively, think inductively. Think practically, make new technologies, and share. He's like a philosopher of science, almost. Yeah, he was a philosopher of science. He wasn't really a scientist. He's not credited with any discoveries. And people quibble. They say he didn't really come up with the, you know, the scientific method, the hypothesis. He didn't. Uh, I, you know, he did though. He he specifically said share information, and he on the surface he appeared to be rejecting magic. But he really wasn't because he understood that in a certain sense, you know, new technologies are kind of a form of magic. And he yes, created the uh, Industrial Revolution came right after that. But what's interesting, too, is that Freemasons believe that if you become a Freemason and follow the precepts, you will become enlightened. And Freemasons call themselves sons of light. And then it just so happens that the next stage of history was called the age of enlightenment. Kind of, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. And I don't that either. Kind of, that kind of brings up the fact that Masonry, and no insult to Masons, there's a lot of good Masons. I, I'm not putting down individual Masons. I'm not putting down regular English people. I'm not saying English people are bad. I do believe, though, that they've been coerced. They've been coerced by an elite with tremendous intellectual powers and an understanding of coercion, which this picture of Elizabeth you see on your screen, that kind of ceremony and 
ritual and even just the clothes like that, those kind of clothes would produce awe in the average person back in that day. And that kind of awe would allow them to give them a suggestion like, you know, you should probably get on that boat and spend two years, you know, eating sardines so the empire can, you know, take over Burma or whatever, you know, I'm just kind of saying that they, they, they did condition the English people to believe in themselves as an exceptional race, you know, as the true chosen ones. And, the New and Jerusalem, yeah. The New Jerusalem to think it's their duty to take over the world. There was very little opposition to this whole idea of empire in England. They were, they're masters. They're masters of what they did. And I really think it was Bacon at the heart of it, that he knew it. It wasn't unconscious. It wasn't an accident that he put all these things together between science, espionage, uh, but propaganda like these Shakespeare has to be seen. An aspect of it is pro Royal. Absolutely. Propaganda. Yeah. And there's almost no commoners in Shakespeare for a commoner to have written it. And if there are commoners or regular people, they're generally the butt of jokes. Yeah. Like Henry the fifth. Yeah. yeah. Falstaff, although one of them, Falstaff kind of becomes a hero, but he's just a fat drunk. And over and over again, it, it reinforces the idea of royalty ruled by aristocracy. The, um, the New Atlantis is a, a utopia, but it's not a, demo it's not a democracy. It's not a, a land of equality. It's, it's ruled by an arist aristocratic elite that are the technocrats because they have scientific knowledge so he predicted kind of this technocracy that's pretty much ruling things they're definitely trying to rule things through the great reset and oh, you know no no through question. this covid We're, bullshit <laughs> we are closer to being run by a technocracy than i think and it can comes right out of francis bacon, bacon. he definitely predicted it and wanted it to happen and the really astonishing thing besides besides his unbelievable intellect and the amount of influence he had is that it's coming true. It's almost like mop up time. You know, there's a few, a few places left that aren't ruled by this, this ideology. And well, I can tell you this, there's a lot of um, Gnosticism in big tech that isn't acknowledged as Gnosticism. Right. But the ideology is Gnostic. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. They believe in their knowledge will make things better. They're going to you know, put it all in themselves. They're putting together algorithms and all kinds of things to facilitate that. So we're, we're in uh, some kind of society that I think Francis Bacon would be very comfortable in running. I think, I think he wanted to recreate that era, the Tudor era, ruled by, a, ruled by a very few elites that were very highly educated and just you know, boss, boss the rest of the, the crowd around. around, and I think he, I, I think that's what I think that's what we're getting here. Yeah, it's kind of like a neo feudalistic kind of worldview, and I actually think that in maybe we talked about this last time in Silicon Valley, they have re-established the Invisible College. Have you heard that? I, I'm sure they have. <laughs> they have. I'm pretty sure. I got to go. I'll put that in the links if I can find that out. But we're yeah. about. I got to run off to another interview. We're about 50 minutes here, Robert. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I, I missed before we wrap it up? Um, well, this is all kind of complicated and huge amounts of information. Uh, but visit thehiddenlifeisbest.com for links, for books, and, and listen to the podcast at uh, Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. Uh, give me some feedback. Give me some tips. But I'll tell you, out of London... Out of London came modern finance, modern theater, modern espionage, the slave trade. They, they kind of mastered this whole idea of colonies, although the Spanish were good at it too. Science, modern science came out of London, the Royal Society. Modern corporations came out of London, East India Company, uh, the Virginia Company. The Industrial Revolution started right in London. Darwinism is from London, socialism and the Fabians from London, communism, the communist manifesto was written in London. 
fascism, tremendous support for fascism. Uh, they kind of foisted it off onto the Germans, but that's what they did with the uh, Rosicrucians too, which supposedly came out of Germany. But there's great links between England, Germany, and France, by the way. Um, there's an amazing book called The Secret History of, The Hidden History of World War I. Phenomenal book that shows how uh, great the English are at espionage and kind of generating that war, which destroyed all the empires remaining in the world, except one. You can take a guess which one that is. Could it be the English one? <laughs> Could be. Destroyed the Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russian Empire. Um, what not the Spanish Empire was still hanging on by a thread and really cleared the path uh, for the English Empire to continue on its on its merry way and there's a great quote i have somewhere i don't have it here about um how they manipulated nations to join uh world war one it's a great book hidden history but go to the website the hidden life is best.com they manipulated links. the u.s into world war one no yeah it's that. it's a phenomenal book they're yeah. you know they're phenomenal at uh at statecraft, at manipulation. They are known as the perfidious Albion, Albion being another, another name for England. It is one of their nicknames. I think they've been doing it for years. They've, they've successfully yeah. done it for decades, centuries. So that kind of learning has been passed down for yeah. centuries. And really that was one of the only uh, failures they had was the United States. Almost every other one, Australia, Canada, uh, India till 1947, yeah. I think. Um, they were successful pretty much everywhere else. Oh, South Africa. And you'll notice mm -hmm. that their protectorates, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, England itself, Canada, are being the most brutal in the Great Reset. Interesting. Fascinating point. It really is an important point. Yeah, really. so it just, it just goes on and on and on. We're kind of just scratching the surface today, but I think you got a, a broad overview of what I stumbled on, and I'm just going to keep going. There's, there's just more and yeah, more. Yeah, keep more. going. The really fascinating research. There's a lot there. People go and listen to it on the Hidden Life is Best. It's Robert Frederick. His contact information is there. I'll put his email in the show notes. But uh, thanks so much for your time. Really interesting. Thank you, William. All right, take care. Take, take care. All right, bye. All right, bye bye. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there.